Hello, and welcome to the Narrative Matters podcast, where we hear stories about experiences with the healthcare system and the people in it that highlight the important policy issues of today. I'm Jessica Bylander. Today, I'm talking to Marnie Smith, Assistant Director of Graduate Career Services at the Austin W. Marks School of Public and International Affairs at Baruch College. She is also a founding member of the nonprofit Push for Empowered Pregnancy, which is working to end preventable stillbirth. In this month's Narrative Matters essay, Smith writes about her son, Heath, who was stillborn at 36 weeks of pregnancy. 24,000 babies were stillborn in the U.S. in 2014, and the rate of stillbirth in this country has barely budged in the past two decades. Other countries, such as Scotland, have implemented policy and practice changes to try to reduce the rates of stillbirth. Today, Smith is working to import these stillbirth prevention policies from abroad so other parents never have to have this experience. Arnie, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, Your essay struck a chord with me, particularly as I'm expecting a baby in the coming days. And first, I I just wanted to say I'm so sorry for your loss. Thank you. And what, you know, also struck me is that stillbirth really isn't an issue that's talked about much. Um, So why do you think that is? I would say our culture is not very comfortable with talking about dead babies. There's so much joy and excitement when a baby is born alive. But when your baby dies, nobody wants to talk about it or even acknowledge it. The gravity of the loss and the grief that bereaved parents experience is often not recognized by family or friends or even medical providers. And because of this stigma around stillbirth, many people don't even realize that stillbirth still happens. Doctors are taught in medical school that stillbirth is rare. And so they don't talk to families about the risks. And the standard of care in this country is really not adequate. And the resulting silence around stillbirth is really deadly because it's not possible to prevent something from happening if patients aren't educated about it and not given the care that they deserve. Yeah. And for those who think there's nothing anyone can do to prevent stillbirth, because you do hear that from providers, as you mentioned, what would you tell them and what resources would you point them to? First, I would acknowledge that not all stillbirth is preventable, but research has shown that about 50% of stillbirths are indeed preventable. In my essay, I talk about how other countries have been able to successfully lower stillbirth rates. The crazy thing is that I've heard people say stillbirths aren't preventable, including medical professionals. There's a sense of fatalism, and complacency in the medical field and in our society around stillbirth. It's really baffling to hear, we don't know why this happened, or this could not have been prevented from an OB or an MFM who are people of science and medicine. And honestly, it's disturbing when we've made so much progress on SIDS and prematurity And the number of stillbirths in this country is so much higher than the number of those deaths combined. Mm -hmm. 
And this is one of the main reasons that I'm involved with the nonprofit Push for Empowered Pregnancy, which is dedicated to stillbirth prevention in the U.S. If you go to pushpregnancy.org, we have a section for families with loads of resources and educational materials. And I also invite people to email me at marnie at pushpregnancy.org if they have any questions or want further resources. Thank you for being so open to to speaking with others. And um, I'm sure this is an issue that will touch many. And now here's Marnie Smith reading her essay, After a Death, Bringing Stillbirth Prevention to the U.S. My son Heath was stillborn on Saturday, September 21st, 2019, at a prominent hospital in New York City at 36 weeks and six days, almost full term. This experience, after an otherwise normal and healthy pregnancy, was devastating, crushing, and life-changing. On Friday, September 20th, I remember telling my husband that I hadn't felt Heath kick that evening. Neither of us had been educated on fetal movement, how important it was to keep track of your baby's movement patterns in the third trimester, and to report any changes to a doctor immediately. Heath always kicked in the evening, usually when we were having dinner and when I was going to sleep. But that night, there had been nothing. Should I call the doctor? My husband asked. Exhausted, I said that I just wanted to go to bed. I fell asleep quickly, but awakened around 4 a.m. on Saturday morning to stillness. I woke my husband up. The baby hen kicked me all night. My husband called my obstetrician, who said to go to the hospital right away. It was still dark outside when we got into a lift to go to the hospital. My doctor had called ahead and they were expecting me. Even so, I ended up waiting 30 minutes to be seen. When it was my turn, I was hooked up to an ultrasound machine while a sonographer tried in vain to find my son's heartbeat. She went to get a doctor who quickly evaluated the situation and said the words no expecting parents ever want to hear. I'm sorry, there is no heartbeat. I knew immediately that my son was dead and that I would have to deliver him anyway. In my 20s, becoming pregnant and going through labor had been my two biggest fears. The thought of the discomfort, the pain, the bleeding, the possibility of tearing, it all made me want to run and hide. Now here I was, and the circumstances were a thousand times worse than my worst nightmares. The nurse wrapped a curtain around the makeshift room we were in, and my husband and I held each other and cried. Grief had not hit me yet. I was in shock and terrified of having to deliver my lifeless son. 
Soon we were moved to a labor and delivery room. I changed into a gown, a nurse attached an IV to my wrist, and I had a metallic aftertaste in my mouth that she said was normal. I got an epidural, and they administered Pitocin to induce labor. My obstetrician was on call and came to see us. After hours of contractions, which thankfully I did not feel, it was time to push. My OB had asked my husband and me if we wanted to see the baby. We couldn't. Our naivete gave us the mistaken belief that we would suffer even more if we saw our baby. In our grief and shock, we couldn't fully process the gravity of our son's death. My sole focus had been getting through the labor. What should have been the happiest day of our lives had become a nightmare. The doctor wrapped Heath up, handed him to a nurse who whisked him away, delivered the placenta, and started stitching up my second-degree tear. The medical staff offered to take me to a recovery room, but it would be shared, and my husband wouldn't be able to stay with me. By then, it was around midnight, and we chose to stay in the room I gave birth in. They hadn't cleaned it yet, and there were bloody linens on the floor, though I hardly noticed. We didn't sleep well, and on Sunday morning, a social worker came to see us. She, too, asked us if we wanted to see the baby, and we told her no. My sister came to visit us. My mom wanted to, but I knew if I saw her face, everything would become real. My son would really be dead. We left the hospital on Sunday night with no baby and with an envelope of support brochures that I did not open. My husband sent an email to friends and family saying we had lost the baby and asked that all replies go to him. I couldn't handle reading them. Back at home, I started reading about women who never saw their babies and later regretted it. So we decided to go back to the hospital to see him a couple of days later. My mom came with us. We took turns holding Heath and taking pictures. It was heartbreaking, but now the pictures are all I have. He looked perfect. His little fingers and toes were perfect. He looked ready to come home with us. I didn't understand. And I still don't. The autopsy revealed nothing. Genetic testing came back normal. My obstetrician suspected a placental abruption. In half to a third of stillbirth cases, doctors never find a cause, and it's written off as an anomaly. During labor with Heath, my obstetrician was already talking about the next pregnancy. My husband had to ask her to stop. During a follow-up visit, she talked about moving on and focusing on future happiness, which I knew meant having another baby. By this time, I was in the depths of my grief and tears of sorrow and anger poured down my face. The disconnect between the kind doctor 
who guided me through my pregnancy and delivered my baby. And the woman who stood before me now was like night and day. I felt as if she was just brushing off the worst tragedy of my life. My obstetrician also told me there was nothing that could have been done in my case. But that's not necessarily true. With a better standard of care, one that is not so insufficient that thousands upon thousands of babies die every year, it's possible that Heath and many other babies like him would have lived. Of course, this is if you believe that there is a standard of care for pregnancy, and not all doctors do. Either way, the question remains, why are we accepting deaths that we should actively be trying to prevent? Since Heath's death, I've learned that 24,000 babies were stillborn in the U.S. in 2014, according to data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, CDC, and the rate of stillbirth in the U.S. has barely budged in the past two decades. Stillbirth cuts across all socioeconomic classes and races, where rates of stillbirth are double to triple among black women compared to white women, the CDC also found. Almost 50% of stillbirths occur at or near full-term gestation. In a 2016 study published in The Lancet by Vicki Flanity and colleagues, the United States ranked 48th out of 49 high-income nations for annual rate of reduction of stillbirths. While the U.S. is badly lagging in addressing the problem of stillbirths, other countries are addressing it with rational fixes. In 2019, Catherine Calderwood, an obstetrician and chief medical officer for Scotland, presented remotely at the U.S.-based Star Legacy Foundation's Stillbirth Summit about efforts to reduce stillbirth in her country. I watched the recording later, and it struck a chord. In 2009, the Saving Babies' Lives report from SANS, a London-based stillbirth and neonatal death charity, found that at the time, one in every 200 babies in the UK was stillborn, and the rates had not changed in 10 years. In response, the National Health Service, NHS, in Scotland created a task force and launched the Maternity and Children Quality Improvement Collaborative in 2013. In five years, stillbirth rates in Scotland saw sustained improvement of nearly 23%, according to Healthcare Improvement Scotland. The organization notes that this drop was due to the adoption of five relatively simple tenets. Risk assessment, prevention, and surveillance of pregnancies at risk of fetal growth restriction. Raising awareness of reduced fetal movement. Effective fetal monitoring during labor. Reducing preterm birth. And reducing smoking in pregnancy. In her presentation, Calderwood talked about tackling the problem of stillbirth even when her colleagues folded their arms and told her not to be ridiculous, it wasn't possible to change the stillbirth rate. 
Don't listen to them when they say it can't be done, she said. I took these words to heart. The results in Scotland were undeniable. It baffled me that Scotland's proven stillbirth prevention protocols weren't being used in the U.S. After reading Dan Heath's book, Switch, which discusses making lasting change in healthcare and many other areas, I reached out to him and was eventually connected with Sue Gullo, the now former director of implementation at Ariadne Labs, a joint center for health systems innovation at Brigham and Women's Hospital and the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Gullo has 37 years of experience in maternal child health, perinatal initiatives, patient safety, and quality improvement. She had even worked with the NHS and Calderwood in Scotland to put their stillbirth prevention protocols into place. With the support of Gullo at Ariadne and Lindsay Wimmer, Executive Director of the Star Legacy Foundation, a plan began to form. We started outlining plans for an implementation innovation learning collaborative to adapt NHS stillbirth prevention protocols for the U.S. Phase one includes adapting version two of the NHS's Saving Babies Lives Care Bundle to the U.S. and creating an implementation strategy. The current plan for phase two is the launch of the Implementation Innovation Learning Collaborative, composed of up to 30 well-positioned healthcare organizations with a diverse set of patients and stakeholders and a specific aim to reduce stillbirths by 15%. Our goal is that the population of health systems will include 50% of hospitals that are predominantly serving black and brown patients. We plan to take these proven stillbirth prevention protocols and show that they could work in the U.S. as well. As I searched for answers as to why my son had died, I also was encouraged to get in touch with Harvey Kleiman at Yale, a physician scientist who does research on the placenta and consults with pregnancy loss patients. Kleiman was able to tell me that Heath's placenta was in the 90th percentile by weight and his birth weight was in the 4th percentile. Heath's weight was noted in the autopsy, but there was no mention of his weight being incredibly low or low at all. In the U.S., third trimester ultrasounds, also known as growth scans, may be ordered for older pregnant women and covered by insurance. But otherwise, ultrasounds after 20 weeks often are not considered necessary and are not covered. If a third trimester growth scan were part of the regular standard of care for all pregnant women, it is possible that Heath's low weight would have been caught while he was still alive. Any weight below the 10th percentile needs to be carefully monitored, according to the American Pregnancy Association, and early delivery may be recommended depending on how far along the pregnancy is. In other words, it is possible that my son's death could have been prevented with better monitoring. My daughter, Sosha Heath, was born in May 2021. Around the same time, I helped start the nonprofit Push for Empowered Pregnancy, a coalition of bereaved parents from around the country 
working with researchers, doctors, and other allies to drive down the incidence of stillbirth in the U.S. over the next decade. With the support of friends, family, lost parents, and many others, I also have been able to raise over $215,000 to help make the Implementation Innovation Learning Collaborative a reality. Phase one began in March 2021 and continued through the end of the year. I believe that this collaborative and the efforts of PUSH have the potential to drastically improve the number of live births in this country and save many families from the trauma I experienced. That was Marnie Smith reading her essay, After a Death, Bringing Stillbirth Prevention to the U.S. Thanks for listening to the Health Affairs Narrative Matters podcast. If you liked this episode, tell a friend. And be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you.